0: superhumanize accelerated evolution
1: it is the most fundamental question of humanity are we alone are we the only intelligent life in the universe the answer whether it is yes or no has profound implications on every aspect of our lives And yet, until very recently, the scientific community at large has refused to officially pursue the answer to this question. My guest today is no stranger to controversy and not afraid to ask the question and to give his answer. Professor Avi Loeb is a Harvard astrophysicist and arguably one of the world's most famous scientists today. In his 2021 book, Extraterrestrial the first sign of intelligent life beyond Earth. He proposes that the interstellar object, Oumuamua, which passed through our solar system in 2017, may indeed be the creation of an alien intelligence. His book became an immediate New York Times bestseller and caused a huge stir in the media and the scientific community. Professor Loeb is the author of five books and over 800 scientific papers. In 2012, Time Magazine named him one of the 25 most influential people in space. Professor Loeb is the Frank B. Baird, Junior Professor of Science at Harvard University, where he is also director of the Black Hole Initiative and the Institute for Theory and Computation, and has worked on many advances in space and astrophysics, producing pioneering and provocative research on black holes, gamma ray bursts, and the early universe. Today, we will talk about his riveting hypothesis, which states that we are not alone in the universe, and about his work as the head of the Galileo Project, which focuses on the systematic scientific search for evidence of extraterrestrial technological artifacts. Professor Avi Loeb, thank you so much for making time today and welcome to the Superhumanized podcast. It is such a pleasure to be with you.
0: It's a great pleasure to be with you.
1: (laughs) You were once asked that if you had a free wish, your wish would be that your colleagues, your scientific colleagues would behave more like kids. Why is that?
0: Because when I was a kid, I remember very vividly being at the Uh, attending dinner and asking a difficult question. And the adults in the room uh, would pretend that they know the answer, even though it was obvious to me as a kid that they had no clue. And that was the good situation. The worst situation was when they would dismiss the question because they didn't know the answer to it. Mm -hmm. So that uh, brought me eventually to become a scientist and address questions of interest myself based on evidence. And not pretend. If I don't know the answer, I would try to collect more evidence that would guide me. And uh, I was expecting to be surrounded by like-minded people. In fact, in academia, we have the concept of tenure, where we are not supposed to worry about job security. We can just pursue truth and uh, take risks. And Albert Einstein, in the last decade of his career, made three major mistakes, He argued that black holes do not exist, gravitational waves do not exist, and quantum mechanics doesn't have spooky action at a distance, as he called it. And he was wrong on all three counts. And what that demonstrates is that it's always work in progress. It's always a learning experience, and you should be willing to make mistakes. Now, very often nowadays, people are not taking risks, except when... Uh, it's part of the mainstream to consider a possibility. Everyone says, yes, it makes a lot of sense. For example, let's build a machine that will crash fundamental uh, nuclei and uh, see what we get. And in fact, we forecast that we will find a new symmetry of nature called supersymmetry. Scientists agreed that's a very worthwhile proposition and therefore they. Funded the Large Hadron Collider uh, at CERN that cost almost $10 billion. Did we find supersymmetry? Not at all. Now, nobody would say that seeking supersymmetry was a risk not worth taking. Putting $10 billion and not finding what you're looking for is part of work at the frontiers of science. As long as the community of mainstream scientists agree to take that risk. And it's a lot of times not agreed upon. For example, suppose we invested 1% of the 10 billion, just a hundred million, to search for things that we are doing. We are sending out equipment to space, and we can search if other civilizations that predated us did the same. What's so speculative about this notion? Is it more speculative than searching for supersymmetry? And by the way, if we find evidence for equipment produced by another civilization, that would change the future of humanity. If we find evidence for supersymmetry, it would have very little impact on the daily lives of people. Mm. But the response of the community, the mainstream is... No, we don't want to talk about equipment produced by a smarter kid on our cosmic block because that's an extraordinary proposition to even consider that. We need extraordinary evidence before we will engage in this discussion. But guess what? You will never find this evidence unless you fund the search for it. Yes. And there is this famous uh, saying by Carl Sagan extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And everyone quotes that in the context of searching for extraterrestrial intelligence. But I think it should be supplemented by the follow up statement extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary funding. And mm-hmm. if we put $10 billion towards looking for supersymmetry, why not put? of that in the search for equipment from other civilizations. That's what the Galileo project that I established a few months ago.
1: Excellent. And of course, you mentioned it yourself. You went into science to answer some of the greatest questions of humanity. And what could be a more profound question than are we alone? And... You just took reference, of course, to your book. Professor Loeb, you've had a very successful career in science with many leadership positions, and your accomplishments have garnered you respect and recognition for decades. And ever since you published your book, extraterrestrial, the first sign of intelligent life beyond Earth this year, you've likely become the most famous scientist alive. And the title of your book and, of course, the contents message in it is clear. But for the very few listeners who may not be aware of your work, in your book, you propose that Oumuamua, the interstellar object that passed through our solar system in 2017, may have been the creation of alien intelligence. And this is something, this is what you actually were talking about, that there's such opposition to this notion. And I want to delve into that. But for the few people who are not aware of it, if you could just in a nutshell explain to us, what are the main anomalies of this object that caused you to conclude with this theory?
0: So let me just start with a brief uh, historical anecdote. About 70 years ago, Enrico Fermi, a famous physicist, won the Nobel Prize, sat at lunch in Los Alamos together with colleagues. They were discussing extraterrestrial intelligence and they were talking about the fact that it's very likely, given that there are so many planets out there with conditions similar to Earth. We now know that's the case, by the way, Mm -hmm. that the Earth-Sun system is not unique or special or privileged. He didn't know it, but he assumed that it's the case. And and then he said, where is everybody? Now... (laughs) This reminds me of um, a tale about a fisherman that went to sea with, and then came back and said, I discovered the new law of nature that all fish are bigger than two centimeters. And someone asked him, what's the size of the hole, the holes in your fishing net? And mm-hmm. he said, two centimeters. Now, the fishing net during the days of Enrico Fermi had huge holes. He was just like a person sitting at home and saying, nobody's knocking on my door right now. Therefore, I don't have neighbors. Why would they knock on your door exactly when you're asking this question? Why would they visit Los Alamos and park in front of your eyes so that you would know where is everybody? Mm -hmm. And by the way, even the documented history of humans uh, spans at most, a fraction of 10,000 years, which is a millionth of the age of the Earth. And so what's the chance that during the lifetime of Enrico Fermi, when he was asking this question, they would show up? And the point is that the first time we actually had a fishing net at all, look, meaning telescopes looking at surveying the sky for objects that are passing near Earth, was with the Pan-STARRS telescope in Hawaii. And a couple of years after it was established to monitor the sky, it discovered the first object from outside the solar system. And the name that was given to it was Oumuamua, which means a scout in the Hawaiian language. This was really the first fishing net, and that was the first fish that we caught Mm -hmm. And in October 2017. And of course, astronomers immediately said it must be a comet. Why? Because... Comets are the most abundant objects that uh, we see coming from the outskirts of the solar system. And they are usually rocks covered with ice. So when they get close to the sun, the ice evaporates and we see a beautiful cometary tail. The only problem about Oumuamua, even though it was given the name comet, the only problem was that there was no cometary tail. So the evidence was against it. And in fact, the Spitzer Space Telescope looked very deeply around the object, not only we couldn't see a cometary tail, there was no trace of any carbon-based molecules around this object to a very uh, tight limit. And so it was definitely not a comet. <laughs> and then the astronomer said, okay, maybe it's just rock. And, but as it was tumbling every eight hours, the amount of sunlight that it reflected changed by a factor of 10, which meant that it had a very extreme shape. Most likely flat, based on the variations of light. And um, that meant a pancake-shaped object. And then on top of that, the object exhibited an excess push away from the sun. And since it was not evaporating, the rocket effect could not explain it. So the only explanation I, I could think of is the reflection of sunlight is pushing it. Just like a sail being pushed by the wind, except here it's the light from the sun pushing it. And for that, it had to be very thin. So I suggested maybe it's an artificial object. And then, of course, everyone said, oh, no, it can't be the case. It must be natural. And uh, a year ago, the pan telescope in Hawaii discovered another object, which exhibited an excess push away from the sun, no cometary tail. The same quality as a Somuamua. And then the astronomers realized this object was given the name 2020-SO, And then it was recognized soon afterwards that it was actually a rocket booster that was launched in 1966 by NASA. So we know that we produced it artificially, and it had thin walls. That's why it was pushed by reflecting sunlight. And uh, we know that we produced 2020 SO. The question is, who produced Oumuamua? Mm. And that is not a philosophical question, by the way. Uh, there was a philosopher that wrote an article about Umumuamua saying it must be natural. And I thought to myself, four centuries ago, the philosophers were telling Galileo Galilei, no, we know the sun moves around the earth. We don't need to look through your telescopes. And they put him in house arrest. And today they would have canceled him on social media. <laughs> and the point is, we now launch spacecrafts. We rely on the fact that the earth moves around the sun. We know it for a fact. Nobody remembers those philosophers, but they were much more powerful than Galileo. They put him in house arrest so that he can't communicate with anyone. And my point is, reality is whatever it is. We can decide not to look through our windows. We can decide that Umuamua is natural and we get a lot of likes on Twitter but reality doesn't care about it. The Earth continues to move around the sun, irrespective of what philosophers agreed on. And if there are objects from other civilizations around us, they are around us, irrespective of whether we deny the possibility and not even look for our telescopes. So we, I think, as scientists, we should seek more evidence. That's really the lesson that I learned from Oumuamua. And in that case, what we need to get is a high resolution photograph. We need a rendezvous with another object. You can think of Oumuamua as being someone that we loved and we lost because by now it's too far, we can't see it. And then we are trying to date an Oumuamua like object. And you're just like in going on date when you decide whether to have an offspring with a date. You have Collect as much information as possible to see whether it's worthwhile to have that person as a partner. And if we were to see another object that looks weird, we really need to get a lot of information from uh, telescopes on the ground about it before we decide to send a spacecraft, because that will cost a billion dollars to send a, a camera that will pass near the object and take a close up photograph. So it's just like in dating, you have to decide whether. Mm-hmm. You know, to rendezvous or not to rendezvous? This is the question. In this case, it's a billion-dollar question. And if so the Galileo project, one part of it, is indeed that kind of a space mission. And to take a, a high-resolution photograph will, be, will enable to decide whether it's natural or artificial in origin. I should say that all the astronomers who claim that it's natural had to come up with an object that we've never seen before. For example, a chunk of frozen hydrogen or a chunk of frozen nitrogen. These are things we've never seen before. Or a dust bunny, Mm -hmm. the size of a football field. Not only we haven't seen them before, but each of them raises new challenges, new problems, because there is not enough nitrogen to make enough chunks. The uh, hydrogen evaporates too quickly, and a cloud of dust particles will get... uh, Heated up and will not maintain its integrity when it gets close to the sun, but to me it reminds me of a situation where you have a caveman that is used to playing with rocks all of his life, and suddenly sees a cell phone. Mm-hmm. And the caveman would argue the cell phone is a rock of a type that I've never seen before, but it's probably a rock. And if the cell phone, like some of my colleagues, if the the caveman, like some of my colleagues, will decide it's a rock, there is no point in looking farther into it, let's just throw it away, then that would be the end of it. But right. if the caveman wants to learn more, he could press a button and record his voice, or press another button, record his image, and it will become clear that it's not a rock. And so I would like to press some buttons on objects like Oumuaba. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you are basically, what you're postulating is, to stay curious, to ask these questions, to pursue these questions, and not just nip them in the bud, you mentioned Galileo Galilei. There's other people who come to mind, of course, such as Giordano Bruno, who was burnt at the stake just for putting out the possibility of that our world may not be what we have conceived it to be. Why, after you you publish your book, which became an immediate New York Times bestseller, you also got a lot of drawback from the media, especially also the scientific community and also some of the public. Why is there such a reluctance to conceive of the phenomena of intelligent life in the universe when we already have it here on Earth? Why is contemplating this possibility so threatening to so many people?
0: Because we have it on Earth. So many people would like to maintain our superiority relative to everything. If we find microbes on Mars, for example, through the Perseverance rover, that's not a threat to our ego because we can feel superior. We are intelligent. The microbes are not intelligent. Great. We found evidence for life, but it's not really threatening. We are still most important. But if the Perseverance rover bumps uh, into the wreckage of a spaceship that represents technologies that we do not possess, that would be a blow to our ego. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the reason. It's just like my daughters, when they were young and at home, they thought that they are the smartest in the world because they compared themselves to the family member. But once I took them to the kindergarten, they had a psychological shock to see kids that are smarter than they are. And they would have much preferred to maintain the illusion by staying at home. So part of it is trying to avoid Uh, the consequences of recognizing that we are not the smartest kid on the block. You see, that's part of it. But in the scientific community, there are uh, a lot of people that that regard themselves as experts.
1: Mm. And
0: um, they gain that reputation in their field after many decades of studying the environments that they deal with and being recognized worldwide as, as knowing what they... Uh, will see in those environments. So these are people, for example, that worked on rocks in the solar system, asteroids or comets. And if you now uh, tell them there is an object that doesn't look like a rock of the type that we have seen, it bothers them because it may represent something they've not appreciated. It threatens their expertise and they prefer it to go away. One of them told me after hearing a colloquium about Oumuamua, he said, Uh, Oumuamua is so weird, I wish it never existed. And obviously that threatens his expertise. And so that's another aspect of it. And and there is a fear from taking risks in academia because most people, even after they get tenure, prefer to maintain an image by which they make no mistakes. They always know what they're talking about. They can forecast whatever we find and get honors, awards and be recognized by the scientific community as a whole, as advocating something that is well-known and just getting into more details about it. And that's really the common practice of most scientists. It takes some courage to decide to if there is something anomalous to say it's anomalous. I feel like the kid, and by the way, if you ask people that knew me from my childhood, they will tell you that I haven't changed much. I'm still the same kid. I feel like the kid uh, in this Danish folktale that said that the emperor has no clothes. And in this case, it's uh, the scientific community, the way it responds to something unusual. And the reason I I was uh, going in that direction is because before 2017, I was not working on this subject. I was Mm -hmm. working on the universe, on black holes. And... When studying the universe, there are many things we don't know. For example, what is the nature of most of the matter in the universe? And people make conjectures, like maybe most of the matter in the universe is weakly interacting massive particles, and then they go and invest hundreds of millions of dollars searching for those particles. That that happened over the past forty years. Okay, it's part of the mainstream. It's completely legitimate to postulate to suggest possibility possible particles that make up the dark matter, and then it's even Completely legitimate to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in searching for those. And nobody even apologizes when it's they are not found. So f- 40 years later, we haven't found anything. And nobody says it was a waste. No, because that's the way science is done. We don't know the answer. We're trying to find it. But when dealing with this subject, for some reason, the mainstream is opposed to it. And I applied the same rules as I learned in the study of the universe. I said, okay, here is an anomalous object. One possibility is that it's artificial. It's not an outrageous possibility because we ourselves are sending spacecraft into space. And why not? We know that a lot of stars formed billions of years before the sun and that they have planets like the Earth. Uh, because half of the sun-like stars have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly the same separation. So why not imagine things like us predated us, and they sent equipment into space that we can find? What is outrageous in pursuing that Mm -hmm. while pursuing weakly interacting massive particles sounds completely mainstream. Like, I don't see that. And so I behaved just like a kid. I said, okay. This is a possibility. Let's explore it. And then I got this huge backlash. Mm -hmm. And the only reason the two of us are speaking is because other people do not share my common sense for some reason. And it's surprising to me because I don't see myself as special. I just think the same way as the public does. And when something unusual shows up, I speak about it. What's the problem? Why should that be abolished while discussing speculations? In the mainstream of science, is, is not like people are talking about extra dimensions, like super, uh, you know, super symmetry that we haven't found. They're talking about super string uh, theory, the landscape, inflation, things that we don't have a proof for. And these are considered mainstream and everyone celebrates them. And people, uh, scientists are giving each other awards and they feel very smart talking about them. But when dealing with equipment from another kid of, on the block, that is forbidden. Let's not even discuss
1: it. I know. I'm with you. I agree with you completely. You also uh, take reference to Heraclitus. If you do not expect the unexpected, you will not find it. And I'd love to share with you actually a story that my father, who is now in his 80s, shared with me, not even when I was a child, but probably 10 or 15 years ago, when just the topic came up. So my father is a former ambassador uh, to Germany. He served in the diplomatic service for pretty much all of his adult life. He's, as a matter of fact, and no-nonsense as they come. So he told me a story of when- Just like you- <laughs> oh he would like to hear that but thank you so he shared with me a story when he was his he was in his, his position he was in Quito in South America and one evening he was walking up a street to pick up a friend of his beautiful starlit sky above it must have been 1962 i think or so 64 and uh, all of a sudden he saw this uh, object this light in the sky that moved at incredible angles where he had not drunk anything at that they hadn't gone out for dinner yet he was stone sober and so he watched this object moving at crazy angles and all of a sudden it just took off into the skies so he never really he kept that memory and until i asked many decades later it, he actually never even put it into context, but I just found it remarkable that somebody, and if you knew my father, you knew how uh, uncharacteristic such a story is for a man such like as him is. So I've always been open to the possibilities. There's so much more out there. And I appreciate somebody as yourself who asks the question, puts out the hypothesis. And you mentioned it, this large scale of adversity that you got, how do you personally deal with it when you have so many people telling you this can't be, or they openly criticize you uh, publicly? How on, on a personal level, that really interests me. That takes really some fortitude of mind.
0: I should say that it's really interesting because it's just like uh, being uh, on the beach and trying to swim when there are waves taking you up and down at the same time, and. Because uh, on the one hand, you have these critics, and many of them are not scientists. They pretend to be scientists, and they're sent like attack dogs just to attack me. And uh, on the other hand, you have a lot of people showing support. And just to give you an example, uh, I was at the Washington National Cathedral uh, a month ago, and there was a forum, the Ignatius Forum, uh, together with uh, Jeff Bezos uh, from uh, Blue Origins and uh, Amazon. and. Avril Haynes, the Director of National Intelligence, Uh, she actually sat next to me and I had a chance to speak with her quite a bit. And then also uh, there was a a theologian, uh, David Wilkinson from uh, Durham University, and Bill Nelson, the head of NASA. So that was the forum at the National Cathedral. And we had an interesting uh, discussion, which is available online if anyone is interested, but... At the end of it, everyone left the room, the cathedral, and there was a long line of people waiting to speak with me. Mm-hmm. I was really struck. It was heartwarming because there were a further 50 people that, and it took half an hour for me to speak with each and every one of them. And all of them wanted to express uh, their support and the inspiration from the message in my book. And I had of the order of um, 1,300 interviews over the past uh, half year, and uh, a lot of people came to the porch of my home, quite uh, distinguished people, and uh, just inspired by my book. and That included two people that wanted to have a selfie with a branch on a tree uh, next to my porch because it's mentioned in the book as a symbol of uh, supporting young people early in their career. There Mm -hmm. is a branch that broke off when we arrived to uh, to my home and I was advised to take it off, but I put the insulation band around it and now it's the tallest branch in in that uh, tree. And in fact, the insulation tape is swallowed uh, by the branch. And uh, to me, it illustrates how important it is to help people at a vulnerable stage in their development, especially young people. And uh, so these two people that came to the porch of my home took a ser- said, where is the branch? And I said, I can't believe that you paid so much attention to every word in my book. And they took a selfie. And that was amazing to me. And one couple brought um, a present, a gift from their daughter, which was a a red oak plant for for a tree that I planted in the backyard. So it was all quite rewarding to see this uh, feedback from people that really were inspired by the book. And and moreover, the, the one most important thing that came out of that was that there were several wealthy individuals that visited the porch of my home with questions about my book. And then within a few weeks, I had $2 million in my research fund that I decided to allocate for a new project called the Galileo Project. So the way I deal with it is I'm a theorist. I think about ideas. That's what I get paid for. But I decided that since nobody else will do it, I will establish an observational program, basically uh, putting building telescope systems mm-hmm. that will inform us about the nature of those objects that are near earth that we don't understand, such as the one that your father saw. These are called now unidentified aerial phenomena. And Avril Haynes, that was sitting next to me at the National Cathedral, she submitted a report as the Director of National Intelligence to Congress on the 25th of June this year, talking about a lot of those objects that the military personnel identified and could not understand. And As a result of her report, I actually decided that because of Oumuamua and because of these objects, like the one that your father saw, I will establish the Galileo project that will have two branches. One branch is to build telescope systems that will get much better data on objects like the the one that your father saw, and basically get a megapixel image of such an object, high-resolution image, so we can read off the label on the object whether it's made in china made in russia or made on exoplanet why but if we have a good enough angular resolution we can do that and and with a big enough telescope and we are now assembling the first telescope system on the roof of the harvard college observatory actually these days and then we will build more many more copies of it and distribute them depending on how much funding we have that is really exciting yeah we need the, of order 100 million actually to, to cover enough of the sky and get a lot of good data. And how, the many second,
1: these, how many of these do you actually plan if once you get the funding? How many of these uh, telescopes are we talking about at all kinds of different positions? Uh,
0: we hope for hundreds and obviously we will be limited by the funding we have. So with 2 million, we can maybe get 5 to 10, but we really need much more than that. So I hope to... to the project just started a few months ago and we are already there are more than 100 scientists engaged in it so there is a lot of excitement and expertise involved every week uh, we have about six meetings sub of subgroups within the collaboration and then the second component of the Galileo project is another Oumuamua okay another object that looks weird and then taking a close-up photograph of it. These two objectives are followed by the same project. Of course, they involve different, very different instruments and design, and and they cost uh, different amounts. But my hope is that enough people will be excited to contribute funds so that this will materialize. And you realize I'm a theorist, but I'm leading this observational effort. So in answer to your question, I think eventually if we get good enough data, we will know. It's like a fishing expedition. And there is this poem by Robert Frost that says talks about the road not taken. There were two roads in the woods and he took the road not taken and that made all the difference. And for me, the advantage of taking the road not taken is that there may be low hanging fruit that nobody picked up because nobody took that road. Yes. And that's what the Galileo Project is aiming at.
1: That is wonderful, Professor Loeb, and it is very worthwhile noting that you are actually the first person, scientist of your stature, to actually come out openly and proposing these hypotheses, these questions, which I think is just marvelous. Now, if we look at our own civilization, we developed our technology probably only over the last 100 years, and When we look at the possibility, the immensity, the sheer immensity of the universe around us, the age of it, the possibilities of planets that could, just by the numbers they're mind boggling, that may also possibly have held or are holding life right now. And talking about potential civilizations that are not just a hundred or a thousand years more advanced than us, but that possibly are hundreds of thousands or millions of years more advanced than us. In with regards to these this potential, in your mind, how should humanity handle a potential first contact with extraterrestrial intelligence?
0: Well, the way I see it is like the caveman finding a cell phone. Mm-hmm. So we the caveman would not understand at first what it means. But the caveman will be able, by examining this object, will be able to tell that it's not natural and it's something else. And Probably that would be the way that we would interact with a piece of equipment that was developed by technological civilization that is much more advanced than we are. And I don't think our first encounter will be with biological creatures. I think it will be systems that are either defunct, that are not working anymore because they are so old they stopped working, or it will be a system that is equipped with artificial intelligence that outsmarts us. And we might need our own AI uh, systems to interpret their AI systems, just like we rely on kids to interpret content that we find on the internet because they're more computer savvy. And uh, we ourselves, I think, in the future, not in the very distant future, but in the relatively near future, within a decade, I think we will, instead of sending human astronauts, we will send artificial intelligence astronauts ai astronauts just like we let those ai systems drive cars uh, right now and it makes much more sense to send the uh, uh, systems made of electronics because they can survive in the harsh conditions of uh, space uh, bombardment by energetic particles will not be as harmful to them and also they can survive very long times not like humans and we should be proud of them by the way and as if they were our technological kids. I participated in the forum uh, a couple of months ago where uh, someone said that uh, he's worried about the future of AI, and I said, "You should." It, it must mean the person was very young, so I, th- I I assumed that he doesn't have any kids because I said, "Once you have kids, you realize you can educate early on, and then you send them to the world." and They may not do exactly what you want them to do, but you accept that. It's part of the risk. And the same is true with AI systems. You can educate them through machine learning. You can give them your desired code of conduct and the blueprint for how they should behave and what they should pursue. And then through machine learning, they learn from experience. And you may hope that they do well. And you can try to correct them if they don't, but uh, we should be more relaxed about it. And I think sending those AI astronauts uh, to space would be a thrilling experience because instead of risking our life, we can see them exploring space autonomously. And if we are imagining such a future, someone else might have done it already, and maybe they are not far from us.
1: Yes, it makes a lot of sense, and I love your analogy with the biological children. And when we look at the search for extra- extraterrestrial intelligence, you talked about Fermi, of course, before. What exactly are we looking for so far, and what should we be perhaps looking for instead?
0: Right, so only around 2015, we had the pan telescope surveying the sky, And its sensitivity allows it to see objects the size of a football field, reflecting sunlight. That's pretty much it. So here came Oumuamua. It was roughly the size of a football field. We saw it and it looked weird. There could be a lot of smaller objects that reflect less sunlight that we we are missing. And also they might be moving very fast. So we completely miss them. And we are really at the very beginning of our search. That's what I'm saying. And For Enrico Fermi to argue, where is everybody, before investing a billion dollars in searching for things, I think it's just presumptuous. It's inappropriate. And um, we should engage in this search right now. Of course, the first thing we will learn is the size of the object, the fact that it has screws and, and bolts on it, maybe buttons, and doesn't look natural, doesn't look like a hydrogen iceberg or a nitrogen iceberg that we are imagining now as an explanation to Omua once we realize that it's artificial then the question is what is it and if it's smart it's, if it has a artificial intelligence then what is the intent of this thing what kind of information is it seeking that would be the first thing i'm very much in favor of not engaging but first passively observing As if, you know, you have a guest uh, coming to visit you and first you want to see who this guest is, what's the intention. (laughs) You don't want to jump to conclusions because we know about the city of Troy where people uh, embraced uh, the Trojan horse and we know that they misjudged it. So first of all, is to collect as much data as possible passively and figure out before doing anything.
1: Mm. And then
0: uh, we can see what kind of information is it seeking, how is it responding to our behavior? And then we should decide. I think it's a matter of international interest, not national interest. And as of now, of course, as part of the national in- intelligence um, or national security efforts, the U.S. is uh, seeing things. Okay, And it, it, these are classified. Most of the data is classified because it's picked up by classified sensors. but What the Galileo project is trying to do is bring it to the open Mm -hmm. because most of the sky is not classified and we can use off-the-shelf instrumentation and make the data open and the analysis transparent. That's the way that we can clear up the fog. That's Mm -hmm. the way that science operates. And... Ridicule is really inappropriate in this case because the public cares a lot about this subject and the government cares about it. So, how can scientists say, No, we want to work on extra dimensions or we want to work on the multiverse or we want to work on the second decimal point of how much dark matter there is? Not that it will reveal the nature of dark matter, but still, that is an acceptable line of research for which you can get tenure, for which you can get prizes. Really, let's step back a a moment and look at what we are doing. We're pursuing Uh, very esoteric goals at the moment in in branches of astronomy that are refinements on knowledge that we already have, and that are not of that much relevance to the daily lives of people. Whereas there is this huge question,
1: this big elephant in the room that everyone is ignoring. Yes. And what is your take, actually? Because in just in the recent past, we've actually had President Obama. We've had people of note who basically said, yes, there are things there, UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, that we cannot explain. The way, What is your take on that? Are we as the public actually getting prepared for the release of some information that's been held back for way too The
0: information will probably not be released because it was collected by classified sensors that are used for national security. So if you reveal the information, then you reveal the capabilities of the U.S. And uh, the U.S. does not want that to be revealed because it can be used by adversaries for other purposes. It, It just illustrates the fact that there is a lot of data. There is an iceberg, and most of the iceberg is hidden Under the water, we can't see it because it's classified. It was collected by classified sensors. And what we see is just the tip of the iceberg. But then, people that were able to dive under the water, these are the very respectable politicians that we hear from. They tell us, and that includes Bill Nelson, the head of NASA, when he was a senator, he saw some of the data. And they keep telling us that it looks like a serious matter and they don't have a clue as to what these objects are. So, just like your father, They saw something and they don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. And actually, Bill Nelson encourages scientists to look into that. So I say, okay, if the public cares about it and the government cares about it.
1: Let's do uh, it. Yeah, let's
0: do it. And why would we hesitate as scientists? We live for such a short time. Here is a subject that is exciting. Why should science be boring? Why should it be about getting honors and awards? Let's just operate as kids there is a fascinating question that we can approach using off-the-shelf instrumentation. Let's just do it. And uh, I got thousands of emails after we announced the Galileo Project of people that say, we are supporting the project, we would like to contribute to it. I think it appeals to the public. It will bring a young and fresh talent to science. It will bring funds to science. How can anyone object to it? And yet you find still ridicule and stigma. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was mentioned actually in the uh, report from the Director of National Intelligence to, to, to Congress. And because part of the problem is just like in the case of your father, the people are afraid to talk about things that they witnessed because of the social stigma that is attached to it. And I think When you look back a thousand years, there were people saying the human body has a soul and therefore uh, operations should be banned. Uh, There shouldn't be any anatomy. And Mm -hmm. uh, just imagine if the scientific community would say, oh, there is nonsense being said about the human body. Some people claim it has a soul and cannot be touched because of that. We don't want to engage in that. We just want to examine the string theory landscape instead. Now, where would modern medicine be if that were the case? My point is, in order for us to know in which reality we live, mm-hmm. if we, we need to use our best instruments to examine that reality, we cannot shy away from a question just because of barriers that we put in front of our eyes, because that will be just like uh, avoiding reality, which some people prefer to do, but scientists should not.
1: Yes. So we talked a lot about whether we're alone in the universe and all the things that indicate that we're not. I think there is a question that is as important. Are we ready right now to know the answer?
0: I don't think so, based on the way people respond to this challenge of searching. The scientific community is ridiculing it or pushing back and saying, no, it's not worthwhile. We need extraordinary evidence. And obviously, it's a circular argument, a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you don't fund the search, you will never find that evidence. And then at the same time, other people are saying sp- things that do not make sense about this subject, and you end up with this mix of unjustifiable claims. And uh, of course, the way to break this uh, status quo is by finding evidence and doing it in the scientific way. And that's what the Galileo Project aims to do. And uh, I very much hope for a better future. I very much hope we will find something that it's a fishing expedition and we will find some very interesting, exciting fish. But if we find just sardines that are boring, if we find, if we get high resolution images of birds, I will gladly give it to zoologists. If we find high resolution images of drones, I would gladly provide it to residents of Washington, D.C. who are very curious about. And um, if we find something else, it's sufficient to find one object, not more than that. It may well be a mixed bag with a lot of different things flying in the sky. We just need to find one object of extraterrestrial technological origin for this to be extremely impactful on the future of humanity. And of course, the protocol of how to behave if something like that happens is not formulated as of yet. It's a fascinating question of How to interpret the existence of such an object and what to do with it, and what are the implications for society?
1: I think the implication, no question, would be absolutely vast, but perhaps also for the best. You mentioned in your book also, the words you used were that our planet is careening towards catastrophe. And I'm just wondering, what will it take for us to transition from being these seeming locusts that are ravaging the earth to becoming stewards of this planet? Do you have faith in humanity or do you think we will perish due to our own stupidity?
0: I think there is a good likelihood that we won't survive more than a few centuries if we continue to behave the way we do. Because um, we've never experienced the risk of a catastrophe that is human-made and we are now doing it with climate change and we might do with other future technological uh, advances. We might damage our planet in a way that cannot be repaired. I think one thing that can change our behavior is if we find that there is a, a package in our mailbox mm-hmm. and it's we don't want to be in a situation similar to finding a love letter in the attic from a century ago that uh, whose time has passed. We want to, if there is a package in our mailbox and by the mailbox, really the solar system, we want to read it because it may give us a sense of a better future and one thing I hope it will do, if we see uh, evidence for a smarter kid on our blog, it will inspire us to behave better. Because if you look at human history, it's shaped by groups of people trying to feel superior relative to other people. And of course, the, the best example is the Second World War, where 75 million people died. And that's 10 times the number of deaths caused by COVID-19. Uh, uh, and and just imagine finding evidence for a smarter kid on the block. It would not make sense for people some a group of people to claim that they are superior relative to other people because there is a smarter kid on the block. Our differences are small and perhaps that will convince us to treat each other with respect as equal members of the human species. So I always see things with a positive mindset. I think there is hope and It will shock us to find evidence for a smarter kid on the block, but perhaps also inspire us to behave better.
1: Yes. And your own inspiration that rings through in in your work, also in your book and all the interviews you give, it's hope, it's curiosity, it's staying humble. You grew up on a farm in Israel and very much in touch with nature, your own mother, who studied again after giving birth to you and your siblings. She entrenched in you a love for philosophy. And how has that impacted your work as a scientist?
0: That inspired me a lot because I was always focused on the big questions and was connected to nature. And uh, the one thing I learned throughout my career is that humans very often want to feel privileged. Mm-hmm. And um, it started with Aristotle, the ancient Greek philosopher, who argued we are at the center of the universe and for a thousand years, people believed him because it flattered their ego. Then we realized we are not at the center, thanks to Galileo and Copernicus. But we are, a lot of people still believe that maybe the solar system is special, that the Earth-Sun combination is not really common. And now we know that it's very common, that half of the Sun-like stars have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly the same separation. So that we are not privileged in that sense. But yet you have still... A lot of people saying that claiming that there is a more intelligent species out there or that there was billions of years ago is an extraordinary claim. Now, why would they say that? In my view, we should learn from experience and realize it's better to start from the starting assumption that we are not special, not unique, not privileged, and not the smartest. Let's start from zero and build up as we discover based on data, evidence, information. So our starting point should be, we exist. Therefore, things like us are common. They existed billions of years ago before us. They may not be around right now, transmitting radio waves, the way we are searching. They, But they could have produced equipment that we can find in space. Let's just search for it with a humble mindset. Not assuming we are the smartest until we find extraordinary evidence, but rather assuming that we are in the middle of the road, middle of the distribution, as our mindset. And one thing I tell my students at Harvard when they, in the first day of class, I say, half of you in the class are below the median. And they always get upset because (laughs) they all want to be at the top one or two percent. And the point is that it's not possible because statistically, the median is defined such that half of the class is below it. And for every class, half of the class is below the median. For every class, irrespective of how good the students are, there is half of the students are below the median. That's a fact. And they refuse to recognize that. Now, what I'm saying is we might well be somewhere in the middle or in the lower half of the distribution of intelligence Let's start from the assumption that we are not special, unique, or privileged. That is a much better starting point because, in all of our experience from the past, we realized that we were wrong to assume that we are unique and, and privileged. So, let's start from zero and build our place up. And if we don't find things, we can start to feel more privileged. But before we even started to claim that this is an extraordinary uh, claim to consider something like us that existed a billion years ago, I find that very arrogant, that this is surprising to me. And I don't think of myself, being a scientist, I don't think of myself as priv- elevated relative to any person I meet on the street. Or I feel that the only privilege that you're given as a scientist is the ability to ask difficult questions and look for the evidence uh, and figure out. The answer is from the evidence, rather than assume, rather than use it as a vehicle to demonstrate that we are smart, we can guess the conclusion before we collect the evidence, which is pretty much what a lot of my colleagues are doing. They say, oh, more more must be natural. Forget about it. Oh, of course, if you want to explain what it is, it may be a hydrogen iceberg. It may be a nitrogen iceberg, maybe a dustbin. But we know for sure that it's natural. We don't want to engage in an artificial And my point is, let's be humble. Why assume in advance before we? Because the point is, if you are humble, then you collect the evidence. You want you consider it as a learning experience, and you would find whatever you find. The reality is whatever it is, irrespective of our pre-preconceived notions.
1: I'm very much in agreement with you, and I'm so appreciative of what you put forth into the world and uh, to stand against this tide of people who are just holding on to very unbendable and unopen kinds of ways of thinking, which is actually the polar opposite of what science is supposed to be. You're always supposed to. And I can
0: can explain where I'm coming from because uh, both my parents passed away a few years ago and that Mm -hmm. uh, brought me to the realization that we live for such a short time. Let's uh, cut the nonsense. Let's focus on substance. And here is a question that everyone wants to know the answer to. Here is a question where we have instrumentation that can give us the answer. Let's just go ahead and find the answer. Why is that so difficult? Why should people work on extra dimensions as a string theory landscape, supersymmetry, weakly interacting massive particles as a natural dark matter component? And why would that be regarded as part of the mainstream when? the discussion on something like us would be regarded as a pure speculation that should be ridiculed. Mm. I I just find this inappropriate. And I don't care whether I'm being uh, attacked personally because this is a question for humanity. This is something much bigger than I am. And when I was in the military in my youth, there was this saying that sometimes a soldier should put his body on the barbed wire so that others will pass, other soldiers will, could pass through. And that's the way I feel. I don't care if I'm wounded, if people attack me personally, it's not about me. This is, they get it wrong. The question is not me. The question is, was our uh, Oumuamua natural or artificial? And by attacking me, we don't solve that question. By looking for, through telescopes, we might solve that question. By looking for other objects like it which is pretty much what we are trying to do with the Galileo Project.
1: Outstanding. I will be following that very closely as I know that millions of people around the globe will do Professor Loeb. And there's one question I ask every guest, and that's with regards to their practices. What has elevated your life mentally, physically, spiritually? Is there any habit you have that you'd like to share with the audience? Before we actually press record on the interview, one thing I'd like to interject. You shared with me that a large part of your calories is actually consumed by a dark chocolate. I want to know more about that.
0: Well, yes, about half of my calories, about 900, 800 calories every day come from a dark chocolate that I enjoy eating and has antioxidants and apparently is doing uh, uh, good for my body. And I'm on a low carb diet. And uh, as long as the dark chocolate doesn't have sugars in it, it's uh, perfectly good. And I enjoy it. In general, I think enjoy uh, doing things that you enjoy in life uh, is extremely important rather than focusing on the negatives. and And for me, Working from home over the past year and a half, Um, I'm on sabbatical this year. And doing that was a a great uh, asset because I could focus on my creative work without spending a lot of time on negative comments or things that do not make sense that other people say that's not really my nature. I prefer to focus on creative work and positive message. And the other thing I do every day since the pandemic started is at 5 a.m. in the morning, I jog outdoors, irrespective of whether it rains or snows, or I don't care. Sometimes I re- I return home completely wet. It doesn't affect me. It's part of me feeling nature, being embedded in the rain. And I do it in the... is outside. So during the pandemic, that was very convenient. I don't see any people. I don't need to wear a mask. It's very early in the morning. And I see the sunrise every morning that looks different. And I do it in the company of birds, ducks, uh, wild turkeys, and rap- and bunnies. And just uh, yesterday, I saw four pairs of ducks in a very narrow uh, channel. And I looked at them and the amazing thing is I noticed that they're dating, they're mating, trying to figure out who the partner would be. And it reminded me of the fact that, when you're trying to find a partner with whom you would have an offspring, having an offspring is a very tedious task and it requires, uh, first of all, it favors, uh, it, it's good to have a partner that has a good uh, genetic making, but also that is has good uh, companionship uh, skills. And that's what the ducks were doing, uh, trying to figure out who they want. And then... Um, it reminded me of this mission of the Galileo project where we have to date the next oumuamua and it will cost a, a, a billion dollars to do that to rendezvous with it so we have to collect enough information to figure out whether that's the object that we want to dedicate a space mission to it's like dating and uh, i get inspiration so i wrote an essay as a result of that encounter i wrote an essay which was accepted for publication in the brief uh, in the coming days. And uh, I often, when I look at nature, I'm inspired and I feel part of nature. And I, uh, just a week ago, I went to the Walden Pond, uh, which is near my home. That's where Henry Thoreau wrote his book. And I did it because um, the former director of the uh, National Science Foundation, Franz Cordova, she invited me to go with her there. And it's very inspiring to see the foundation of the cabin where Henry Thoreau wrote his book. And he very much advocated for the same thing, that being closer to nature is much healthier (laughs) than being surrounded by people in the industrial world. And I don't have any account on social media. And the way I see exploration of space is part of exploring nature the way it is, that was not yet contaminated by humans. I'm very much connected to space because
1: wonderful. Thank you for sharing that, Professor Loeb. And for people who want to learn more about you, about the Galileo project, where can they reach out? Where can they do?
0: They can find my website at Harvard University by putting my name Avi Loeb at Harvard University, and the the main website has a, a lot of links in it to my latest opinion essays and. Um, also to videos from various interviews and to my scientific papers and also my contact information. If anyone is interested, they can send me an email and I try to respond to all of the emails.
1: Wonderful. Professor Loeb, it has been such a profound pleasure to talk with you, to listen to your insights and all the vast knowledge you've gathered with respect to all these, which is truly the most fascinating question humanity has yet to solve. Thank you for being a man, not only for taking walking paths that are least walked, but for actually forging your own path. So yeah. lots of gratitude.
0: Thank you so much for hosting me. And I just wanted to say that if we get the good data and it looks like what your father saw appeared again, I will gladly inform your father you, through you of our findings first. And And it's a great pleasure. Now you gave me another motivation for doing the Galileo Project.
1: Thank you so much, Professor Loeb. Much gratitude and much continued success and curiosity and discoveries to you. Wish you a wonderful rest of your day.
0: Thank you. Superhumanize. Accelerated Evolution.